Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 7th, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco, a great city on the west coast of the United States. We've been doing two kinds of shows recently, or at least two kinds of characters. Late last week, I had a wonderful conversation with a man called uh, Michael L. Walker on his experience of doing time in jail, in an American jail as an African-American. He had a particularly traumatic and appalling experience. Um, We do a lot of shows on race and racism and the, the epidemic of jail, which seems to have affected particularly the African-American community in America. We also do lots of shows on highly successful, wealthy people like my friend Albert Wenger, the Union Square Venture investor who was on the show last week, and Chris Schroeder, who used to run Newsweek Online, one of the pioneers of the internet. It's less rare, though, that we combine these characters. Uh, But today, my guest on the show, a very distinguished man, a unique story, rather too unique, I guess, in many ways. Uh, Larry Miller is a very successful, indeed iconic figure in American sports and corporate life. But as a young man, he spent time in jail and he had a terrible secret. Um, I'm thrilled that Larry is joining us. Um, from uh, Portland, Oregon today. Um, And he is also the author of um, a wonderfully entertaining and in many ways moving book, which he wrote with his daughter, Laley Lacey, uh, called Jump, My Secret Journey from the Streets to the Boardroom. Uh, Larry, welcome. Wonderful to have you on the show. Thank thank you, Andrew. It's It's great to be here. So this combination of a guy, a young man, you, you're very honest in, in, in this book. It's a very confessional man who experienced the wrong side of the law as a young man. And then you've risen to become one of the most prominent businessmen in America. How do you think you've managed, Larry, to combine these two lives in a single life? Uh, it, it, it hasn't been easy, Andrew. I mean, um, you know, for probably the last 40 years or so before uh, writing this book and making it uh, public, um, I hid from that first part of my life. I hid from that earlier part of my life and um, tried to keep it secret and tried to, uh, and was always worried and concerned that it might get out because uh, I thought that it was something that could really um, negatively impact my career uh, because um, people that I worked with, people who knew me, had no idea of uh, of what my background was and what I had gone through uh, when I was younger. Um, so uh, it, it's, it, it wasn't easy kind of merging those two or because in reality, I wasn't merging them. I was trying to keep them separate. Um, but now, uh, you know, I think it's it's been beneficial to share this story and um, the reason for doing it is that, uh, you know, hopefully it will motivate and inspire some people that, uh, you know, that they can change their life, that they can do something positive with their life, even though uh, they may be in a bad situation now or, you know, things may not be the way they would 
want them to be right now. But the book hopefully will inspire some people to know that they can change their life. And that was the whole purpose and the goal of, of, of doing this book. The book is called Jump, My Secret Journey from the Streets to the Boardroom. That's the subtitle. What are the streets? What was it like growing up on the streets of Philadelphia, Larry, as a young uh, man? When, when were you born? What year? I was born, actually, in 1949. Um, wow. I'm 72. and uh, You look a good 72, Larry. I hope I look like you when I'm 72. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, and I grew up, uh, you know, both parents in, in there. My father worked every day to make sure that we had everything we needed. Uh, my mother took care of and, and raised uh, eight kids in the family. Um, and so I come from a, from a solid background as far as family is concerned. Um, but, and, and up until, up th all through elementary school, I was like straight A student, uh, teachers, pet, that, kind, that kid. But it was somewhere around the age of like 11, 12, 13, that the streets started appealing to me and started pulling me in. You know, I started getting involved in more things in the street. And after a while, it became I, I, my goal was to impress people in the street as, as opposed to before my goal had been to impress parents and teachers. It, it kind of shifted and I became um, this person in the street, a gang, I joined a gang um, and just, you know, became uh, this kind of street thug. And, um, you know, it was. It was, and again, that was just that attraction to me of the street because that to me was what was cool. The people who were uh, in the street were the cool people. And I just kind of was drawn to that. And it led me down a path that, uh, that ended up with me uh, getting in a, a lot of trouble. Larry, uh, you grew up in Philadelphia, right? Yes. Um, the great city. Uh, um, my daughter's actually at college just outside Philadelphia. Uh, where was your family? How, how many generations did your family live in Philadelphia? Well, my, my parents migrated from North Carolina. Both came from different parts of North Carolina, but they came from uh, North Carolina. They met once they got to Philadelphia and started the family. Uh, so, so they were the first of our family to be in Philly. And then, you know, now that's, that's home for me and all of my family. Was there a big cultural gap between you and your parents? You, 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 you came of age in the early 60s. You, as you say, you joined a gang. There were some very profound cultural shifts, both in America, within the African-American community. What happened in the early 60s that resulted in you essentially disobeying your, your parents, leaving a strong family and going out onto the streets? Well, well like, like I said, I, um, you know, I, I'm kind of a person that... Um, you know, if I get into something, then I'm I'm into it 100%. And uh, like I said, over gradually, my um, my preferences and what I my priorities started to shift. And my priorities shifted from, like I said, pleasing teachers and you know, pleasing parents and being that kid who was the good kid. My preference shifted to, you know, impressing people in the streets. And it was it was uh, it was tough. My family. Uh, gave me a hard time about it and um, you know they were not happy about the things that I was doing and the way I had decided to to uh, to get involved in the street but at that point I was like hey I'm, I'm committed to this and I'm in and so 
uh, it was just a, it was a, it was a constant struggle between them and, and, and me with me, you know, pushing and wanting to be that person in the street and them trying to show me the right way. Uh, we are talking with Larry Miller, the author of Jump, My Secret Journey from the Streets to the Boardroom. There'll be perhaps two kinds of people both reading the book and watching this, Larry. Parents and kids. What did, what, what did you learn from your life and what did you put into Jump to teach young men to avoid the street? And, and, and what message would you also give parents who have rebellious, energetic, troublesome kids? Well, I think, um, you know, from the from the kids perspective, I would say, um, you know, there's no uh, there's no no positive output outcome that can come from, you know, being in the gang. And there's nothing positive that comes from that. Um, You have to realize that you're probably going to do some things and end up in a situation that you're going to regret at some point, which that was the case for me. There's there are a lot of things that I've I regret and that I wish I hadn't done. And now I'm trying to share with these young folks or with these kids that, hey, you know, it might seem cool now. It might seem like the thing to do. But in reality, you're going to be sorry. You're going to wish you hadn't done some of these things and you're going to regret the fact that you did. And I, I, you know, I'm living proof of that. that, uh, Do you think your parents could have done it differently? Do Do you think there are lessons for parents from your own story? I think, um, you know, and again, I, I can't, I can't uh, put any blame on my parents. This was all me. They, they, uh, you know, they provided all the things that I needed. I have seven brothers and sisters. I'm the only one out of the eight kids who went through the things that I went through. So, were you the youngest? Where, where were you in those seven? Or eight? I'm in the middle. I have three brothers older than me, and then everyone else is younger than me. But. Um, so, so I can't, I can't point a finger at my parents and say anything negative about them because, again, I look at my brothers and sisters and look at how, you know, they all are doing well. They've all uh, never, you know, never been into any kind of things that I was in, into. And so, again, it, it's, it's on me. And I would just say to parents, just, you know, try to stay close to your kids. Try to stay connected to them and, you know, try to maintain that influence on them that you have as they're younger because again i think what happens is you know parents have that influence and that connection with kids but as they get older it's harder to maintain that because you know they've got their own lives their own friends they're influenced by things outside of the house Um, but i think you know the, the thing that i would say is try to stay as close to them as possible try to stay as connected to them as possible and you know, um, you know, just try to try to be close to them because, like I said, they they're at, at a certain age. Um, outside influences can start to have a lot more effect and impact on them than what's happening in the household. And I think the more you can, can stay connected to them, stay close to them, uh, try to you know keep them close to you and have them feel uh, a connection to you. I think that's that's the best you can do because. Uh, again, you know, it's hard to, once kids are, are grown and grow up or start to get to a certain age, it's hard to control them. You can't, you know, it's hard to physically control them. You have to, I think, just emotionally try to maintain that connection with them. You can always, of course, if you have um, 
difficult relations with your children, you can always sit down and write a book with them. I, I'm not sure what your relations are with your kids, but your daughter, Layla Lacey, um, co-wrote the book with you, was an inspiration. How did that come about? Was it a kind of confessional? How much did your kids, and Layla in particular, know about your life before writing this book with her? Well, they, they kind of knew, um, you know, they, they knew parts of my life. They didn't know the details. They knew, I think, you know, all of my kids knew that I had been in jail. They didn't know details or what for. Um, How many her, kids do you have, Larry? Four. Four. And her being my oldest, um, she, like I said, kind of knew and grew up with me kind of being in and out of jail and, and being there, but then not being there. Um, and she is the one who really pushed me to, to tell this story. I mean, for, for years, she would be, you know, hey, dad, you have a story that people need to hear. It can motivate and inspire some people. And I would like, yeah, yeah, but I was not ready to share my story. I was still, you know, this was still a secret to me. And I was still trying to hold on to this secret. Um, but over the years, she kind of worked on me and convinced me that um, that I should do this. And I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to do it, then we're going to do it together. Were you and totally honest with her? Was there any secrets you kept from her? I, I, I Once I decided to do it, I was totally open. And, you know, we would, her and I would get together and spend, I don't know, four or five hours at a time sometime. And, you know, I, we would just talk. I She'd ask questions, I'd talk, and then she would record it and then go back and transcribe it. And um, that was the process that we worked on. And then at a certain point, we had had a document that had all these stories and all in it, but it wasn't in a, it wasn't a book. And so that's when we decided, hey, we've got to figure out and get some help in, in putting a book together. But it was really her pushing and her, um, you know, really inspiring me to, to do this. And I think uh, through the process, her and I um, definitely became closer. I think um, I found out some things that she was feeling and dealing with that I wasn't aware of. And vice versa, I think she found out, um, you know, a lot of things that I was dealing with or things that I was going through that she wasn't aware of. And so I think it actually did create a, a even stronger bond between us. Um, and, and again, I think uh, for for my other kids and the rest of my family, um, you know, mo all, they all kind of knew some parts of the story, but not all of it. Like my sister called me today. She was like, I just finished the book. And she was like, I... I, you know, I cried, I laughed, she was, and this is my sister who, you know, she's been around and grew up with me. So there were a lot of things that she wasn't aware of in the book as well. So it, it's been, um, I think it's been eye-opening for not just uh, people who don't know me, but even for, for family and folks who do know, because a lot of the things they weren't aware of. And um, Well, so I certainly feel, uh, I mean, this is the first time we've ever spoken, I feel I I know you a little bit from uh, this wonderful new book, Jump. Um, Scott Fitzgerald, the American uh, 20th century great novelist, famously noted there are no second acts in American life. I think he was wrong. I think he was probably saying that somewhat ironically. Perhaps America is made up of second acts. Do you think your story is particularly or peculiarly American in the way in which you did indeed have this remarkable second act? I definitely do. I think, um, you know, there, I, I mean, I don't know if in any, in any other country I would have had the opportunity to, to do what I've been able to do. Um, 
And so I think, you know, to me, with all of the issues and faults and things that this company, this country could do and be better at, I, I still feel like, um, you know, I don't know that I could have done what I've done in any place other than here in America. It's very generous, uh, uh, Larry. Uh, we are talking with Larry Miller, a very distinguished American uh, titan, corporate titan, uh, runs lots of sports teams and large corporate organizations, including uh, my, the, the Michael Jordan shoe brand. We're going to, um, we're going to, after the break, Michael, uh, sorry, Larry, now we're going to call you Michael. Uh, Larry, we're going to talk about um, the details of your life. I want to understand where you went to college and the corporations you joined. And I also want to talk about your crime, uh, which is still uh, very revelatory and I'm sure still causes a great deal of pain. So we'll be back, everyone, in about 60 seconds talking to Larry Miller, the author of Jump. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We're back with Larry Miller, the author of Jump, a man who went from the streets to the boardroom of America. Larry, was there one key event that somehow captured this unique journey you made from uh, gang life and prison to becoming one of the most powerful corporate figures in America? Uh, well, the last time I was incarcerated, uh, I, I was incarcerated for a number of armed robberies and <clears throat> The, uh, I was incarcerated in Pennsylvania, and the jail had uh, a program there at the time that was an education release program. So the way it worked is uh, you had to take a certain number of college classes inside the jail, and then you had to qualify, stay out of trouble, all those things to qualify. But then you could move into these trailers that were outside the jail wall and live in these trailers and leave every day and go to school 
and then come back and have to be back by eight o'clock in the evening. And when I first heard about that program, I was like, you know, that's how I think I want to do my time. I mean, if, if I got to do time, I might as well try to do it in a way that's, you know, outside the wall. And so that's why I got into the program. I started to take classes inside the jail. And, but once I kind of got into it and started to um, talk to certain people that were involved with the program and um, really moved out into the trailers and was able to leave every day and go to school and come back. Uh, the more I kind of got into it, the more I started to believe that I really could change my life. And I think that is one of the key, uh, the key components of, of people being able to move on and, and change their life coming out of a situation like that, because you have to really believe that you can change it. And I think that's, it, it, it comes down to changing your own self perception, your perception of yourself and what you think you can do and who you think you are. And I think uh, it took a while, but after a while, um, as I was getting more and more into it, I started to really believe that I could change my life, that I could um, go down a different path and that I could, uh, you know, become a, a, a contributing member of society. And um, as I kind of got more into it, I, I started to believe that and uh, got my associate's degree uh, from Montgomery County Community College in Pennsylvania through that program, uh, transferred down to a halfway house at a certain point and, uh, in North Philly and, um, and transferred all my credits down to Temple University and started at Temple and got my, uh, got right. my uh, it's, so, so universities are really important in your, in your narrative. The value of education is central. Education is to me, that's what changed my life. The ability to get an education, the ability to, uh, you know, learn a, a, a skill that, uh, was a marketable skill. And I think, uh, you know, for me it was education, but, and the, the sad thing is that, uh, the program that I was involved in then doesn't exist anymore in Pennsylvania. So there, you know, if I was there today, I couldn't come out and do what I've been able to do because the program that allowed me that, that have actually helped me to get on this course on this track, uh, doesn't exist anymore. So that's one of the things that I'm hoping to highlight and point out through this project is the fact that, uh, programs like that are, definitely beneficial and definitely helpful and and hopefully um, places where they don't have them anymore we can you know talk about reinstituting them and then there are places there are states that do have programs that encourage and support um, education for for inmates and I think uh, you know to me to kind of enhance more of those programs and really look at places where programs like that don't exist and try to see if we can't uh, figure out a way to implement some of these programs. The great secret um, in and and and, and uh, the great secret in the book, um, uh, Larry, is is not something obviously you are uh, particularly proud of. Um, it's the murder of a man called Edward White, um, which you admitted to a 1965 murder. Uh, the book has been well reviewed. Um, but one of the reviews suggests that you could have done more to make amends. Do you think that's fair? Do you think that review um, is a fair critique of, of your post-criminal life? Well, I think, um, you know, again, that's, that's someone's opinion and um, they're, they're entitled to that. Um, and, and probably I could have, but I was trying to 
hide from that whole situation and really just, you know, trying to pretend that it didn't, it didn't exist almost. And to the point of, um, you know, I, the last thing I wanted to do was to, uh, at that point was to, um, make this situation known. And so, uh, you know, I, again, uh, that that's someone's opinion and probably I could have done more, but, um, but for me, it was, uh, my, my whole perspective at that point was to keep that secret and uh, to to not uh, have that impact what I was trying to do in terms of... How, did that keep you up sometimes at night? You kept it to yourself, a terrible secret, perhaps the worst secret anyone could have, uh, almost Dostoevskian in its scale. Was it sometimes hard to keep that secret? It, it was. There were, there were a number of times over the years that I thought about sharing my story with uh, certain people and I just, it was t tough. I just couldn't bring myself to do it because I was so, I had programmed myself for 40 years to keep this secret and to hide from this story. Um, so it was, it was definitely challenging. And uh, I think sharing it with my daughter initially made it a little bit easier because, you know, I feel like hey, she's going to have to love me either way. So, um, you know, to me, I think getting it out and sharing it with her made it easier to share it and talk to other people. Um, uh, you know, I, I think it, 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 it helped by talking to her and sharing with her first. That, that kind of made it easier. But, uh, but yeah, there were times over the years that I definitely thought about sharing and talking about it. All right. That's from 1965. It's an awful, uh, awful long time ago. What is that, 40? That's... Uh... Oh, 50, 50 over 50 years 55 50, 50 years and what do you think what, what what have you most learned over the 50 years about that act um larry that, that you didn't know when you were a young man first of all it was senseless um it was you know an act that absolutely should not have happened um if i could go back and undo it i would without question I would go back and undo it today um, and I know uh, the kind of pain and hurt that I caused uh, Mr. White's family um, so if I could go back and undo it if there was anything I could do to change that I would I think um, you know telling this story and, and putting it out there uh, has been again it's been a challenge for me but I know it's also been a challenge for Mr. White's family too have this brought up again. Uh, I've been able to be in contact with them, um, have met with them a couple of times. They have forgiven me, which to me, if nothing else comes out of this project, comes out of this book, the fact that they are willing to forgive me for what happened has, uh, that, that, that I couldn't ask for anything more than, than that to come out of this. Are you a religious man? Do you think that the, the church can help in this? I'm a religious man. I'm religious. I believe that, um, you know, the way I, uh, the way I've kind of thought about this is, you know, I feel like over the years I've had to, in some ways, the struggle has been for me to forgive myself for this. And I've struggled with that, but I've been able to not let that stop me from moving forward. Um, I believe that, uh, God has forgiven me. I think that, you know, I've, I've, uh, express my remorse and my sorrow for what I've done. And I've tried to, um, you know, help people along the way and be a contributor to society. And I think 
you know, I feel I feel like God will will and has forgiven me. And now to have um, Mr. White's family forgive me also, I think that's like I said, that's that's the most I could I could ever ask for. What are you most proud of in your corporate career, Larry? You've done an amazing amount of things at Nike, uh, the Portland Trailblazers, at Kraft, you uh, Air Jordan, you work with Paul Allen and Phil Knight, many other iconic figures uh, in American business and sports life. Is there one particular gig that you just are so proud of that for you epitomizes the stuff you've achieved in this second act? Uh, I, I think if I, you know, if I, Talk, have to talk about that. It has to be um, the Jordan brand. I mean, you know what I what I've been a part of in terms of building the Jordan brand because I, I don't, you know, I, I know that um, you know you don't you're not you don't do things by yourself. So to me, it was a team effort, and I'm just glad that I was able to be a part of the team. But to see the impact that the brand has on people throughout the world, and also. You know, some of the things that we've been able to do with the brand in terms of giving back to the community and helping the community. Um, you know, we have a program with the Jordan brand that we started uh, maybe five, six, seven years ago um, called the Jordan Wing Scholarship Program, where we provide a full free ride to students uh, who are part of um, different programs. We, we source the students from uh, different community programs in the cities that we work in and provide a full free ride to, to kids who go through this, who, who qualify for this and who are selected for this. Program. Did Michael Jordan, I mean, Michael Jordan, of course, had his own tragic experience when his father was murdered. Has he read the book? Have you had any response from him on it? Uh, I, I, I haven't. I don't know if he's read the book, but he is definitely aware of, um, you know, I, he was one of the first people that I shared that I shared with in terms of, um, you know, telling them that I was working on this. And, and, you know, he and Phil Knight were two of the first people that I that I shared with. And I think uh, if either one of them would have said, hey, uh, don't know if you should do this or not, or, you know, maybe this is not a good idea, I, I might have been reluctant to do it. But the reality is they, they were both extremely supportive, uh, extremely encouraging. And, um, you know, so so that that enforced with reinforced with me the fact that you know I, I feel like i'm doing the right thing by sharing the story i just watched an interesting documentary on michael jordan he of course is a great sportsman perhaps the greatest sportsman in american history but also a controversial figure amongst some some people argue he didn't do enough politically or isn't political enough what's your position not so much on jordan but the re political responsibility particularly of um, prominent African-Americans like yourself to participate in Black Lives Matter and other issues pertaining to the broader African-American community? I, I guess my perspective is, um, you know, you sh we can't force people to do things that they're not comfortable with and people have to do things in their own way. A lot of times, you know, I know for a fact that then um, MJ has been supportive of a lot of things that people aren't aware of because he's not doing it for um, for notoriety or for so so again to me I think it's people do things the way they're comfortable doing them and I think uh, to me whether it's Michael or any other athlete or entertainer or whatever to me they're going to do what they do the way they want to do it and in a lot of cases that's not necessarily publicly talking about what they do it's more you know, getting things done or 
supporting things or doing things behind the scene. And I think, you know, people judge folks by what they see or hear or what they think they see or hear. But a lot of times I think, um, you know, people aren't aware of the things that, that, that folks are doing because they're not doing it in a public way. And I know uh, Michael has supported and, and given back to the community and given back his pretty much his entire career. And, uh, but again, he doesn't do it in a way that, that people see and know and understand it. So um, again, I, I, but I, I feel like, you know, people have to do what works for them and what they're comfortable with to try to force somebody to, uh, you know, to, to, approach things in a way that they're not comfortable with or a way that they that's not the way they would do it i think um you know we can't sit back and say oh well he didn't do this or she didn't do that i think it's really you know what people are comfortable doing and and you know making the contribution the way that that they see fit larry um we had the prominent harvard law professor randall kennedy on the show i think it was like last week he's been on a couple of times we've done a number of shows about racism we talked to Kennedy about the evolution of the, the N-word. You're a veteran of American business, of corporate life. Um, you're obviously a very prominent African-American figure. I assume you experienced some racism in your corporate ascent. Has anything changed much in American corporate life over the last 40 or indeed even 50 years since you've been in it? Yeah, you know, when I, when I look at, uh, when I look at, companies around like corporate America. Uh, I think there's been progress. Uh, I think there's still a lot of progress that needs to be made, but I think there has been progress. And when I, when I started at Nike in uh, 1997, um, I was the first black vice president in the history of the company. And today there, there are probably, uh, there's a, a significant number of black vice presidents at Nike. Although I think we still have a ways to go and still things that need to be fixed and need to be addressed, uh, you know, in terms of racial equity and those kinds of things. But I think there has been progress, I, you know, to say that there hasn't been progress would, would not be realistic because all you got to do is look around. But the reality is uh, there's still a long ways to go both, uh, you know, for a company like Nike and in corporate America, period. I know you've had quite a lot to do with Barack Obama, first African-American president, iconic figure both in America, obviously, particularly in the African-American community. Uh, 2020 was the year of Black Lives Matter, a profound shift or what many people perceive to be a profound shift. Do you think Black Lives Matter has changed much in America and, and, and above all else outside the corporate boardroom, and particularly in terms of your own life? What else needs to change? What do you want to see happen in in, on the American street over well, the next few years? You know, one, one of the things that, um, that when, when, when um, you know, when George Floyd was killed and uh, all the, the reaction to that and the protests with Black Lives Matter, um, I was really encouraged by that because what, what encouraged me was the fact that it wasn't just black people out protesting. I mean, Black people have been protesting and marching and all that for years. And it, you know, in a lot of cases, it didn't change much. I mean, it changed some things, but it left a lot to be desired. But what I was encouraged by is the fact that it wasn't just black people out marching and protesting and saying that this was wrong. It was, there were folks from all, all walks of life, 
different races of people, young people, old people. And that was really encouraging to me to see um, this reaction by so many people who were saying, this is wrong. This shouldn't be happening in our country. And, and I think, uh, you know, to me, that was, that was great and it was encouraging. I don't know that we've seen significant change uh, based on that. I don't feel like we've seen significant change based on um, based on the, the protests and the things that were happening, uh, you know, a couple of years or so ago. But I, I, I like I said, like I've said in the past, I'm. You know, I'm, I'm kind of the glass has full kind of guy. And to me, you certainly are. And I think your book, um, Jump, uh, My Secret Journey from the Streets to the Boardroom is very much of a, a glass half full kind of book. I don't know where you get your optimism or energy from, Larry, but we need it, especially in the America of 2022. Congratulations on the book. It's honesty. It's um, you, 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 you are uncomfortably honest about your own life sometimes, which I think... Uh, it's uncomfortable for me as well. Well, I congratulate you on that. I think it's an important book, and I think everyone needs to read it. Um, in addition to your new book, anything else people should be reading in February 2022? Uh, well, something that I um, have read not too long ago, again, for the second time, was uh, uh, Nelson Mandela's uh, Long Walk to Freedom. Uh, to me, it's, it's, a, it's a thick book, and it's a... It's, you know, it's a, it takes some time, but it's worth it. I mean, just to hear him talk about the things that he went through to get to where he were, where, where he was and the things that influenced him. And, um, you know, and to me, the fact that he was willing to sacrifice everything uh, for what he believed in and to change the world. And he, he basically was able to do that. So I, I think that is a book that uh, that's that's a great read. And it's inspiring and it definitely um talks about how someone can can change the world by being committed to what they believe in well larry miller keep jumping you're the author of jump uh, it's one of the must read books for february 2022 story of your remarkable life great to talk real honor and i'd love to have you back on the show to talk maybe we can have a show about sports and we can talk specifically about what needs to change in American sports. Thank you so much, Larry. Keep well and keep jumping. Thank, thank you, Andrew. It's glad to be here.